science fiction and fighting crime have gone hand-in-hand for decades. From the greatest detective Bruce Wayne, to the replicant hunter Rick Deckard, to high-tech crime procedurals on primetime TV. I always thought inserting detective archetypes into science fiction or fantasy was a great conceit to introduce unfamiliar readers or viewers to a new world. Humans are so wired to solve mysteries, and we are thrilled by catching bad guys. Detective stories are some of the most popular stories in the world. But solving crimes and preventing crimes are real-world problems. When it comes to the criminal justice system, the line between science fiction and reality is blurred. This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode is about predictive policing. One of my favorite sci-fi crime procedurals is the show Person of Interest, which takes place in the present day, but has a sci-fi twist. Crime procedural fans will immediately recognize the formula in the early seasons, but the most interesting part is the machine. The machine is a computer that uses video surveillance and data gleaned from the internet and spits out numbers, specifically social security numbers of citizens who are most likely to be involved in a crime. However, the machine can't tell the difference if the number will be the victim or the perpetrator. The main purpose of the machine was to predict terrorists. The machine would send the identity or the number to the Department of Homeland Security, but for local crimes in New York City, the main characters would get that number. The drama, at least in the first few seasons, was that the main characters didn't know if they needed to save this person or stop them from committing a crime. Person of Interest dealt with so many huge themes like sentient artificial intelligence of personhood, but for this episode, I want to talk about predicting crime. It turns out the machine is more reality than fiction. According to a Washington University Law Review article by Andrew Ferguson, Predictive policing is the policy of using statistical modeling and data analysis to predict the area a future crime could be committed or to predict the perpetrators of a future crime. The former, using data to predict the site of a future crime, aka environmental criminology or criminal geography, is more prevalent. You see it a lot in crime procedural TV shows like Criminal Minds, the investigators putting pins in a city map and drawing lines between them. In real life, police see the trends of high-crime neighborhoods and patrol those neighborhoods more often in the hope that if a crime is committed, officers can be there quickly or deter crime. Over the 20th century, these pushpin maps have transitioned into digital maps that don't just record the sites of a serial killer like in Criminal Minds, but all recorded crimes. The first practice uses of predictive policing, 1.0 as Ferguson calls it, were in the cities of New York, Los Angeles, and Santa Cruz, under the same leadership police chief William Bratton and the program called PredPol, you know, predictive policing. Historical crime data was recorded and computer algorithms would highlight a small area where a crime such as vehicle theft and burglary would be likely to occur. Police officers were given these maps and instructed to visit those areas as often as they could on their patrols with the idea that their presence would deter the crime. In some jurisdictions, patrol car computers would display these maps. Predictive policing departments focused on nonviolent property crimes, such as burglary and auto theft, because some research suggests that these kinds of crimes had ripple effects in neighborhoods. When an area becomes like a hotspot for theft, it tends to spread like a virus. 
And after the first year of putting this technology in practice, those police departments reported reduction in vehicle theft and other property crimes. In some jurisdictions, it just went down about 4%, but in other jurisdictions, it went down almost 21%. However, Ferguson wrote that crime overall reduced across the country in that year, and follow-up studies have been inconclusive, with property crimes increasing in some years and reducing in others. But let's back up a few decades. According to Ferguson, the practice of using data and statistics in the criminal justice system has been common for over 100 years. In the criminal justice field, it's called actuarial prediction, and at first it was used in predicting recidivism among parolees. The parolee would have to fill out a questionnaire before release that asked questions like where they would live, if they would have a job, waiting for them or not, and using records of previous parolees and statistics, the system would then make a prediction about whether the parolee would be more likely to reoffend. This kind of prediction has been used for a long time. Now that kind of prediction is used in almost every stage of criminal prosecution, from deciding bail or pretrial detention, sentencing prison time, and deciding parolee release conditions. Now judges in some jurisdictions depend on risk assessment predictions instead of their own discretion. Similarly, the kinds of supervision parolees need after release are now decided by risk assessment and statistical tools. These tools are more commonly used depending on the case. Sex offender cases often use risk assessment mechanisms to determine whether suspects should be detained before trial or committed upon release. Domestic abuse suspects are screened using intimate partner violence measures, such as surveys, to identify factors that may predict future violence. Ferguson wrote that over 80% of jurisdictions use risk assessment tools uh, in the cases of juvenile offenders. These predictive policing methods have become so ubiquitous across the country. Ferguson wrote that because of the economy in 2008, police departments were drawn to this promise of cost-effective, high-tech solutions that required fewer labor hours and staff. Federal grants and departments invested in the technology, and smart policing became a movement. Unfortunately, it's hard to determine what the technology actually does from the huge hype around it. Ferguson says that these tools do not replace traditional policing techniques like science fiction and tech companies want us to believe. They mostly just offer more information about the geographic site and suspects of a crime. It can assess risk according to parameters entered by data analysts, can make associations between variables like suspects and geographic areas, and can see patterns that may be missed. Even though predictive policing 1.0 hasn't been widely effective with property crimes, it made smart policing a multi-million dollar business. Companies like IBM and LexisNexis have gotten into the industry selling programs to police departments across the country. IBM specifically has teamed up with Charleston, South Carolina, and Memphis, Tennessee police departments. Criminologists funded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance developed several pilot projects in Boston, Baltimore, Kansas City, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. Statistical tools and algorithms are a key policing strategy despite concerns from academics and community members. And I'll go more into that in a few minutes. The smart policing movement has only ramped up as technology has evolved. Predictive Policing 2.0 used the same idea as 1.0, except it used geographic maps to predict violent crime, such as gang violence and broader gun violence. Cities used risk assessment technology to give certain areas a risk score, with a higher score indicating the higher likelihood of a violent crime being committed. The hype around it has only increased because of the promise of eventually preventing violent crime. Property crimes were the initial focus of studying the effectiveness of smart policing, 
but law enforcement has always wanted to transition to predicting violent crime and predicting the criminals, not just the location of crimes. Predictive Policing 3.0 focuses on targeting people involved in criminal activity, under the assumption that data can indicate social network hotspots. Ferguson wrote that 3.0 involves utilizing big data capabilities to develop predictive profiles of individuals based on past criminal activity, current associations, and other factors that correlate with criminal propensity. Ferguson is quick to point out that arrests based purely on pre-crime predictions have not happened yet. However, police departments have definitely shifted surveillance and investigation resources on these predictions to become more proactive. Ferguson described predictive police programs in several cities, and they all worked in a similar way. Using data from previous criminal history, the list of interviewed suspects from those crimes, and studying those suspects' associations using traditional police methods or monitoring social media would come up with a list of targets, or a list of people who, according to data science, would be more likely to be involved in a crime. Police officers, social workers, and sometimes people from the community, like a sports coach or church leader, in the case of targeting young people, would visit the individuals on this list and connect them with services or, in some case, a strict warning. In Kansas City, which I'm not sure if you know, but that's where I live, the police would inform the people that they were on this list, and if they committed a crime, they would be punished more severely. This 3.0 system reminds me the most of person of interest. Similar to person of interest in cases like Chicago and New Orleans, these lists of targets involve not just possible perpetrators, but possible victims. The data analysis predicts people who may be involved in violence, but can't for sure predict in which way. In fact, Ferguson writes that predictive policing isn't exactly what the technology even does. It's more like crime forecasting or risk forecasting. Like weather forecasts, they aren't correct a lot of the time. It's variable and fallible. However, using data and science in your forecasting is surely an improvement from using hunches and instincts, right? So what's my point? Ferguson's and many academics' concern with predictive policing ubiquity is that there is no real oversight on this technology. Data companies partner with police departments with very little public debate or study on whether they are effective and useful. In fact, according to Verge.com, key members of the city council in New Orleans had no idea that the police department was working with a tech company going on 10 years. And I get the impression from Ferguson in the Verge's article that these programs are put in place with the intention of partnering with social programs, because research has proven that social services in high-crime neighborhoods does more good than more punitive measures. So they use social workers and community efforts to deter further crime. But when budgets get cut, the social programs are the first to start getting cut, and not the technology. And I'm about to tell you how the scary conclusion of this technology is currently being used in China. According to Christina Larson at MIT Technology Review, the Chinese government is using big data, artificial intelligence, and video surveillance not to attempt to prevent crime, but some argue to the point of oppressing its citizens. For example, the government is putting citizens on a blacklist for travel or borrowing money, and citizens don't really have a recourse if a mistake is made. On one hand, pretty benignly, cameras are being used to identify and shame jaywalkers in some cities by projecting their faces on billboards, which could be pretty funny. But it's also tracking the prayer habits of Muslims in Western China, and who knows how accurate those cameras are. 
How well can facial recognition software trained on Chinese faces recognize members of minority groups? Moreover, even if the data collection is accurate, how will the government use this information? These algorithms that predict who is likely to become a criminal are not open to public scrutiny. Neither are the statistics that would show whether crime or terrorism has grown or diminished because of them. For example, in the western region of Xinjiang, the available information shows only that the number of people taken into police custody has shot up 731% in just one year, from 2016 to 2017. The Xinjiang government employed a private company to design the predictive algorithms that assess various data streams. According to the article, the Chinese government rarely releases performance data that outsiders might use to see how effective these are. There's no public record or accountability for how these calculations are built or weighted. Chinese citizens don't even know what rules they are being governed by. In the last two years, thousands of checkpoints have been set up at which people must present both their face and national ID card to proceed on a highway, enter a mosque, or visit a shopping mall. Our largely Muslim ethnic minority are required to install government-designed tracking apps on their smartphones, which monitor their online contacts and the web pages they visited. Police officers visit regularly to collect further data on things like how many people live in their household, what their relationship with their neighbors are like, how many times they pray daily, and whether they have traveled abroad, um, and what books they have. And all this data is fed into the public security system, along with other records, from banking history to family planning. The computer program aggregates all this data and flags those who might become a threat to authorities. China is also introducing augmented reality glasses to police forces that will display this kind of data and recognize faces. Though the precise algorithm is unknown, Larson writes that it may ping behaviors such as visiting a particular mosque, owning a lot of books, buying a large quantity of gasoline, or receiving phone calls or email from abroad. People at flags are visited by police who may take them into custody and put them into prison or in re-education camps without any formal charges. According to VentureBeat.com, these kinds of tactics may be effective when predicting mass-scale terrorism, but has yet to prove itself on a local level. In their story on predictive policing in New Orleans, The Verge cited a 2016 study in which researchers reverse-engineered a police algorithm and found that it replicated systemic bias against over-police communities of color, and that historical crime data didn't even accurately predict future criminal activity. And these examples in China may horrify you if you're an American, perhaps, and yet these kinds of tactics are in practice today, maybe even in your own city. Imagine you're stopped by police over and over. They ask to see your driver's license and they recognize your last name because of these lists. Or were they following you in the first place? They ask you where you're going, where you've been. They cite you for a broken taillight or for going too fast over and over every year. All because of someone you knew in elementary school, or because you flagged something on Facebook, or because you live in a poor neighborhood, or because of the color of your skin. This is the reality of minorities in New York, Kansas City, Boston, Los Angeles, and Denmark, and China. These are the kinds of things that happen in the name of preventing crime. But what proves that this is accurate police work? That these tactics work? That these tactics are worth it? Now that I've properly scared you, um, let's look at this issue from another angle. Not from the point of police officers or citizens living in high-crime neighborhoods, 
but from simply the internet. We're beginning to expect social media sites to detect and report crimes such as posting child pornography or terrorist recruitment videos as soon as that kind of content is posted online. Isn't that a good use of artificial intelligence machine learning? Shouldn't a computer be doing that than hiring people to watch those kinds of videos to flag them and take them down? And what AI has really improved in the last few years, at least in catching financial fraud, is reducing the number of false alerts. While AI in the early 2010s would flag millions of charges, a lot of them were false alarms. Now, thanks to more advanced technology, they're catching more real fraud and white-collar crime. Now, I'm definitely on the side of catching criminals. I can imagine police officers in Chicago and New Orleans with two of the highest murder rates in the country feeling out of options and being sold this technology by tech companies that tell you this program can be trusted. But we always have to be questioning the methods we use that we still protect human rights under the Constitution and that we make sure these methods actually prevent crime. We have to ask ourselves, well, what if this technology accuses an innocent person? Do you submit to be watched every single time you leave your house or your every post online tracked and stored in a database? What if an algorithm decides that you are likely to commit a crime when the thought has never even crossed your mind, like in the movie Minority Report? The controversy around New Orleans' secret partnership and experimentation with crime forecasting has led to the mayor not renewing the contract with the tech company they worked with. Let's look at another example in science fiction. Psychopaths is a cyberpunk anime currently on Hulu that takes place in a future in which citizens are judged by psychometric scans that assess the likelihood of them committing a crime. If their score, or crime coefficient, exceeds a certain threshold, they are pursued by police and either arrested or killed if their score is high enough. The enforcers of the psychopaths also have higher crime coefficient scores, but that supposedly makes them better at finding other latent criminals. They use these guns called dominators that will only shoot people who have high crime coefficients. It kind of reminds me of the smart guns that are in the movie Dread. So in Psychopaths' first episode, it is obvious that the psychopath system has flaws. In a few instances, a victim of a crime can then be pushed over the edge to have a high crime coefficient. And these enforcers are so trigger happy that they do not question their orders for a second. The main character, a recently graduated police inspector named Akane, has to basically risk her own life to save a victim from being shot. And in the last second, the victim calms down, and her crime coefficient reduces to an acceptable level. So, how many people have been shot that if they had just waited a few seconds, they could have controlled their emotions? Psychopaths is another sci-fi that makes you question ethics of predictive policing. Is it worth it to have these tools if they are inaccurate? As technology becomes more and more advanced, these techniques and tools will seem to be inevitable. When budgets are tight and a company promises a cheap, easy way to do the job, how can police departments say no? I hope city councils and local governments, as well as legislators, will institute better oversight so that we know that these methods are for sure effective and accurate. Science fiction has always told us what could go wrong. If you like this episode, share a link on Twitter or Facebook and give me a rating on your favorite podcast app. I want to thank Moxie at From Your Brains on Facts podcast for tweeting at me about the last episode. Send me some feedback and I'll give you a shout out on the show. 
Read the script for this episode and links for the research on factandsciencefiction.com and check out show merch on TeePublic. Swipe over to the show notes and get the link. And lastly, thanks for listening.